Hi friends, welcome back to another episode of the Psychedelic Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, David Flores, CEO of Psychedelic Spotlight. Within the past few years, we have witnessed an encouraging level of legislative progress being made surrounding many different psychedelic substances that have been questionably classified as Schedule I drugs for decades here in the United States. From voters in the states of Oregon and Colorado recently approving measures specifically aimed at creating access to psilocybin for therapeutic purposes, to the state of Kentucky, who has recently announced the allocation of $42 million for psychedelic research, there is both visible and tangible momentum behind the push from society to remove long-standing barriers of accessibility to psychedelics. One organization that has been on the front lines of drafting key psychedelic-focused legislation is Reason for Hope. Led by their co-founder and executive director Brett Waters, a former antitrust litigation attorney at Winston & Strawn, Reason for Hope is playing an active and critical role in helping to advocate for the policy and legal reforms needed to facilitate safe and affordable access to psychedelic medicine and assisted therapies. Brett joins me on today's podcast to discuss some of the initiatives Reason for Hope is currently focused on, along with sharing his very personal inspiration behind why he has chosen to fully dedicate his life to the advocacy for access to psychedelic medicine. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you are listening and to follow us across all of your favorite social media platforms. For now, please enjoy my very insightful conversation with Brett Waters from Reason for Hope. Joining me here today on the Psychedelic Spotlight podcast is Brett Waters, who is the co-founder and executive director of Reason for Hope, a national nonprofit organization focused on the policy and legal reform necessary to advance safe, ethical, and affordable access to psychedelic-assisted therapy. Brett, thank you so much for taking time to join us. How are you doing today? Thanks, Damien. I'm doing well. I appreciate you having me on, and uh, how are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Uh, it's a busy time of year, uh, a lot going on. Uh, of course, still kind of decompressing from the psychedelic science uh, conference there in Denver a couple of weeks ago, which was quite the event. Uh, did you have an opportunity to attend? I did. I, I spoke on a panel. I, I think I was maybe the first panel right after the, the opening uh, with Rick Doblin. I, I spoke on a panel on, on federal and state policy and I was, I think I made it to one other panel, uh, Dr. April, our, our co-founder of Reason for Hope, outside of mine. And unfortunately, I was only there for two days and it felt like uh, needed two weeks. It was definitely a, a whirlwind. It really was. It was impressive. Uh, the turnout, uh, I heard somewhere in the ballpark of 14,000 people showing up to the event. Uh, but like you said, it was just stacked with multiple 
uh, speakers and, and different types of exhibits and things, it was really impressive to see the space coming together like that. Unfortunately, I had to leave as well early um, due to a personal matter, so I didn't get to take in everything I wanted to, but a wonderful event and uh, certainly a sign of where the space is going right now, so that was certainly exciting. Uh, want to talk today a little bit about the work you're involved in here with Reason for Hope. So if you wouldn't mind, Brett, just giving us a quick overview of the uh, organization that is Reason for Hope. Sure. So I uh, started Reason for Hope uh, a few years ago now uh, while I was still an associate attorney at, at Winston & Strawn in, in New York City. Uh, I started it as a nonprofit uh, policy and advocacy organization just as a, a pro bono like volunteer project essentially uh, after spending some time doing policy work with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention uh, New York City chapter and uh, you know unfortunately I, I came to the space and uh, or suicide prevention uh, policy and advocacy work uh, more generally after losing my mom, uh, Sherry Hope Waters, who uh, the organization is named after, uh, I, I lost her to suicide during my first year of practice. And uh, so I, that's how I got involved generally in this work. I had lost my grandfather, her father, uh, to suicide when I was young. And uh, kind of during that time, I, I came across the research uh, specific to psychedelic medicine and it really clicked with some of my own prior experiences and so that's what led to, to starting the the organization uh which i co-founded with with dr lynette abril uh, who also lost her father was a marine to suicide and uh a retired three-star general uh marty Steele, uh former chief operating officer of the marine corps and so we started this kind of small policy organization just as a volunteer project and it has yeah uh, rapidly grown since then. I've, uh, you know, left my job uh, they, towards the end of last year at, at the law firm to focus on this full time. Uh, and as, as part of our, our work with Reason for Hope, we ended up spinning off a uh, separate organization called the Veteran Mental Health Leadership Coalition, which is a membership organization with a number of, of the leaders of the veteran service organizations uh, who've been taking people outside the country, uh, as well as researchers and uh, healthcare providers, attorneys, uh, other uh, mental health experts working in the veteran space and, and have uh, put together this big coalition with a number of, of non-veteran partner organizations as well, uh, you know, ranging from organizations like Cluster Busters to, uh, you know, people from the 9-11 survivor community. And uh, yeah, it's a, an organization of primarily, uh, you know, nonprofit, like patient advocacy and, and veteran service type organizations. And we have been, uh, yeah, active on the policy front at the, the federal and state level uh, over the last year. And uh, happy to, to get into, a, you know, some more of the, the specific initiatives, but it's been a really, uh, yeah, uh, unbelievable experience to just work with such an amazing, uh, group of people who are, are unified in, in the cause and, uh, you know, have a lot of people with their own, you know, personal experiences of whether of loss or of healing and, uh, you know, working to improve the mental health system. And I, yeah, I'm just honored to, to work with so many amazing individuals. Uh, 
Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about some of the initiatives, um, you know, and the progress that's being made out there. It seems like uh, there is some uh, encouraging progress uh, being made, you know, particularly at the state level uh, right now. Of course, you know, we all know what happened, you know, with Colorado um, as they followed in the footsteps of Oregon um, and setting up a program um, for access to psilocybin therapy. Uh, also in the news recently, uh, Kentucky announced that they're allocating $42 million for psychedelic research. Um, want to talk, you know, get your perspective on some of this progress that's been made here uh, and just, you know, a high level overview based on, you know, being someone that's so involved in a lot of this, you know, how encouraged are you by it? And, you know, do you anticipate, you know, seeing more on a national level here in the United States in the coming months or years? However, you can speak to that. Sure. So uh, particularly after the, the house flip this past year, we've really kind of followed a strategy of federal regulatory reform. We saw an opportunity uh, to maybe achieve federal deregulation uh, with the House under Republican control while going after the funding, which we knew would be a, a little bit more difficult in, in that circumstance uh, at the state level. Uh, we think that that's been pretty effective this year. We're uh, right now, uh, at the federal level, uh, you know, I've been working on the Breakthrough Therapies Act, which would reschedule any uh, the active ingredients of drugs that get a breakthrough therapy designation or that the FDA approves for expanded access. Uh, it would essentially automatically require them to be rescheduled from Schedule One to Schedule Two, which would reduce the barriers to research. It would open up uh, access under the Right to Try Act and, and reduce. Uh, the barriers under the FDA's expanded access program. Uh, we're basically just utilizing the same process that already exists after FDA approval, uh, this 90-day uh, window to reschedule. It's same timeline, same process would exist for this, uh, you know, what I consider potentially like an interim rescheduling in advance of full FDA approval. After FDA approval, just as it is right now, you know, get reviewed again and, and hopefully, you know, get moved to a, a lower schedule. But this is something that we felt was, you know, achievable and uh, and is making good progress with, you know, bipartisan support in the House and the Senate. Uh, it's been submitted as an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act. And uh, yeah, we've certainly been, been making a lot of progress there. And then at the state level, we uh, have been working primarily on on funding initiatives like Kentucky, mm -hmm. uh, where we recently uh, participated in a uh, press conference announcing that proposed $42 million for Ibogaine research and development. That is, you know, hopefully if, if that vote succeeds in November, uh, there will be uh, an RFP opened up that will go towards, uh, you know, anybody be able to submit bids to be able to get that funding uh, to advance Ibogaine through the FDA. Uh, you know, unfortunately, $42 million is, is not enough to get through the FDA process. And so we are working uh, very closely with the uh, Kentucky uh, Commission and with other states, uh, you know, starting the process to try to get a, you know, larger consortium of, of state funding with others to match that, uh, you know, while $42 million might not be enough, $420 million certainly uh, 
would get us pretty close. And so uh, we are are going to be pursuing that, uh, you know, pretty strongly over the next year. And uh, you know, the other focus at the state level for us uh, recently has been on the research and implementation of the breakthrough therapies. So for MDMA and psilocybin, uh, you know, we've uh, been successful getting funding for these, you know, state programs that will, yeah, go towards hopefully more bridging the gap between the, you know, clinical research and clinical implementation of these substances and, and accelerate the timeline for uh, patients to actually get access, uh, you know, starting through either investigator-initiated trials or, or FDA-expanded access programs, and then into more formalized patient access programs. Uh, that will, you know, in order to get the funding, require certain data collection and, uh, you know, monitoring, so we can continue to improve our practices. Uh, hopefully, expand insurance coverage uh, and make sure that this is actually working for people, uh, ideally in the long run. And and so I I think this is, you know, kind of something that we feel is just a generally needed mental health reform, not. Uh, necessarily specific to psychedelics beyond the fact that this is a new field, a new market essentially that's mm -hmm. that's coming in. It's like a, instead of repeating the mistakes of the SSRI era, uh, you know, we could really do this better, I think, from the beginning if we are tracking how this goes for people in the real world. Uh, because I think, you know, there's a lot of frustration uh, from patients, my, you know, I count myself amongst them who have uh, used SSRIs and have used them for many years, and that's really not the way that they were studied. Uh, it's not the, you know, the endpoints that were studied that, uh, you know, help these drugs get approved, and then, you know, they're studied at like say eight, six, eight week endpoint, and then people are prescribed them for six years or twenty years. Uh, and we don't really have a lot of good outcome data on, you know, what the effects are uh, for people who are on it for that length of time. And I think this is really an opportunity with the beginning of this rollout of MDMA and psilocybin to do it better. Like, how is this working for patients that are not, uh, that are real world patients, you know, not just the ones that are, uh, you know, more carefully screened and selected for a, a very particular indication. Mm -hmm like just PTSD or just depression, but people who have comorbid PTSD and depression and alcohol use and, uh, you know, potentially suicidal ideation. And, you know, these are the people who are, are going to be seeking treatment in the real world. And so, uh, you know, being able to track what that looks like and, and get better understanding of the long-term outcomes, how frequently people, you know, might be seeking uh, to reuse treatment, uh, the number of people who are seeking to utilize both MDMA and psilocybin moving forward, because I'm certain that that is going to be happening and, you know, getting a better understanding of, of this in the real world, I think will be really valuable towards, yeah, improving mental health care generally. Moving yeah. Forward. In, in talking about understanding that in the real world, uh, you know, we, we saw Australia recently uh, approved uh, MDMA and psilocybin um, for as a treatment for PTSD and depression really becoming uh, the first country to do so. So I'm curious, you know, how much does that and what's going on in Australia play a role in any of your work? Does it affect it in any way? Is it something that you can point to and say, you know, this is an example of 
why this is something we are working towards here. I'm just just curious because it really does seem like they're kind of leading the way there in terms of utilizing MDMA and psilocybin for the treatment of PTSD and depression. So it's certainly a, it wasn't what I guess causes us because we'd already started on this before. Yeah, that happened, but no, it, of course, uh, of course. It, yeah. it is absolutely, uh, you know, a, a very similar idea. I mean, there are slight differences in the legal systems in, in the United States and Australia. So even if this were, you know, uh, rescheduled, for example, schedule two, like which doesn't change any criminal penalties, uh, but it does, yeah, reduce those barriers to research and, and allow access under the right to try act. Like, you know, these drugs are, would be eligible, what's called eligible investigational drugs under the right to try act, which, you know, applies to anything else that isn't in schedule one. And so all we're trying to do is make it so the, you know, these are on par with, you know, everything else and, and keep it a, to be a, you know, science-based decision based on what the FDA has already determined, which has already determined that these are breakthrough therapies, already approved MDMA for expanded access. You know, we believe that that should trigger a rescheduling and, and uh, you know, we uh, filed an amicus brief for uh, Reason for Hope and the Veteran Mental Health Leadership Coalition, arguing that these are uh, promising suicide prevention uh, treatments uh, for a number of reasons, like they should be immediately rescheduled uh, to help us kind of phase the rollout of this for those starting with those who need it most. And, uh, you know, then when full FDA approval comes, we'll have more providers who are actually prepared and trained to properly deliver treatments. Uh, so we, we think it is, you know, absolutely the right thing from a policy perspective to be doing. And we, yeah, you know, certainly uh, applaud Australia for, for taking that initial you know, step. And, yeah. and I think that there are definitely similarities between uh, that rescheduling and, and maybe what like a broader expanded access program could look like in the United States where there are specific controls over the, you know, prescribing rights and, and like required uh, training and protocols. But I, uh, yeah, look forward to, to tracking how that rollout goes in, in Australia. And I'm, I'm confident that it will, uh, yeah, just yeah. demonstrate to people that this is something that we can be doing here and we should be doing here. Um, exactly. It's, uh, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And, and I'm curious, you know, how based on, you know, your, in your professional line of work and also maybe even your personal life, I mean, how has the conversation surrounding psychedelics and psychedelic substances changed? I mean, obviously these, these have been substances that have been demonized in many ways. There's been a stigma tied to them for decades, going back to Richard Nixon's war on drugs. I grew up in the eighties. So I was a part of the dare program growing up where I was taught that all drugs were bad. Uh, psilocybin was just as bad as crack cocaine, which was just as bad as heroin and just as bad as marijuana. So trying to shift that conversation around some of these drugs that I think has been challenging as someone that's involved in so many conversations and that is actively on the front lines trying to shift that conversation. How have you noticed changes out there and is the pushback starting to dissipate at all? Are people starting to finally understand and maybe be a little more receptive to the idea of psychedelics actually having a true therapeutic benefit associated with them. 
Absolutely. Uh, yeah, definitely a shift. I, you know, I'll say that for me, kind of uh, going back to like how I kind of got into this space initially. So I, yeah, I, you know, was born in 1988. I have been through the D.A.R.E. era. Mm -hmm. I certainly uh, feel like I was the victim to it in a certain extent of like huh. horrible misinformation uh, about drugs generally for my whole life. And, and I, uh, you know, had an experience in college uh, that you know, with psilocybin mushrooms, just recreationally, that essentially healed, I, I struggle to use the word healed even like, but uh, yeah, it, it basically treated, healed an eating disorder that I've had my whole life. Mm -hmm. it's, it's called an avoidant restricted food intake disorder. It, uh, it's like a, a severe phobia uh, of foods, a very basic, childhood foods my entire life and preferred hiding behind the fact that I, I was a wrestler and always cutting weight and preferred people thinking I was anorexic to like what I was actually doing. Uh, and this, you know, experience was I basically just like reduced my anxiety about trying new foods for, you know, a six month window where I was able to just kind of eat normal adult foods. And, and it's not that I liked everything, but I liked enough that it uh, changed the course of my life. And, you know, that really stuck with me moving forward. Eventually the effects wore off. Not today as bad as I ever was before that experience, but, uh, you know, certainly the anxiety, uh, you know, still exists for me. And I always get asked like, well, have you done it since then? Like, why mm -hmm. not? And, and, you know, I had this experience and I, my, parents like I certainly told about it and my you know my sister and my close friends who you know knew I had this issue and were there and saw the change like they all knew what happened but most people you know I just I never told never talked about this for for many years I just chalked it up to a miracle and and then I just you know I think because of that kind of drug war like misinformation I I just was afraid of like, oh, you know, I'll, I'm gonna go crazy. I'm gonna get a hole in my head, whatever nonsense is out there. And, and I, you know, really never look, looked into it. And then after I lost my mom and event, you know, eventually came back across this, all this research in the space, like that was an incredibly uh, triggering thing for me. I mean, I, I have, like an immense amount of guilt about that uh you know uh yeah i mean i just i just i carry a lot of i yeah carry a lot of weight and it definitely drove yeah and drives you know a lot of the the work for me is yeah. that like i know that there are just so many other people out there who you know have this misinformed belief about the risks uh, are, you know, maybe unaware entirely of the benefits uh, and the policy and like the legal barriers getting in the way of progress here are just so immense that I, I uh, yeah, I mean, there's all of this was, it was kind of what drove me to like really go all in uh, and, you know, put in, uh, you know, while I was working at the firm, like, I mean, I was just 
basically not sleeping. I was just do, you know, I was putting into crazy big law hours and then doing this pro bono on, on the side. And, and then it got to a point where I just could no longer uh, do both and, and you know, have, have left. And I'll say, I don't think the hours have necessarily gotten much better, but, but the work is uh, obviously very meaningful. And, uh, you know, we are optimistic that we're, we're making some good progress here. But uh, yeah, I mean, correcting, I think that misinformation and stigma is so important. And I do think we're making so much progress on that front. Like there are not a whole lot of people uh, who we come across when we go into a meeting with, uh, you know, uh, particularly like when it's, you know, our, our whole leadership team that we have a retired three-star general who has been, you know, lost so many people and has been at the forefront of, of you know, mental health reform and, and reform at the VA for so many years. Uh, you know, a researcher and clinical research psychologist who works uh, in the VA and is a professor at Baylor lost her father's suicide, you know, lost my mom and my grandfather to suicide. There are not a whole lot of people who are going to, uh, you know, kind of hear the legal and the scientific and, you know, all of the kind of information that we're presenting and, and our, the stories and, and all of the, you know, veterans who have gone through these treatment, whether, you know, in the United States through clinical trials or outside the country, a, a lot of them uh, a lot of people we work with have, have gone through you know, the Mission Within program in, in Mexico or uh, using Ibogaine and 5-MeO-DT or have gone through Heroic Hearts Project uh, and used ayahuasca. Or, you know, there's a lot of people have gone uh, through programs using psilocybin, MDMA. I mean, there's a, a mix of, it, of everything. And so, you you know, you hear these stories and, and there's just no way at this point that you can just balk at it and chalk it up yeah. to like, uh, you know, not real, just the mix of, of patient testimonials and, and science that are driving this forward, I think are both like critical pieces of the puzzle to really changing the narrative and expanding, uh, you know, not just changing the law, but like getting people comfortable with the potential and, uh, you know, actually wanting to, to utilize these substances as, you know, potential healing opportunities. And it, it, it certainly isn't for, you know, gonna be for everyone. Uh, and I think that there are, you know, certainly people who are, are going to be higher risk and, and it might, you know, we might need a lot more research before it would be appropriate for them to, to try it. Certainly, uh, you know, we need to be in the right environment. And uh, yeah, we definitely have a lot more to learn, but I think that uh, generally speaking, like we're just, yeah, come such a long way, even in yeah. the like couple of years I've been involved in, in uh, and the narrative for me just, I, I guess, because I wasn't coming from cannabis advocacy necessarily, or like, uh, you know, I have been involved in like psychedelic universe for as long. So it's, for me, it just feels like a no brainer that like everybody should be supportive of, of this, at least to some extent. And, and we're, yeah, I mean, I think experiencing some of that, like the conversations are usually uh receptive positive yeah. and yeah uh you know definitely making progress absolutely and i think a lot you know what i found uh, is that a lot of individuals myself included that are involved in the space and that are uh, you know pushing for advocacy here we we have a personal 
tie to to this space it's whether you know whether it's ourselves individually or family members myself you know i've shared the story about losing my father in 2018 after his uh, long battle with uh, alcoholism and depression and similar to to the story with your mom it was shortly after the passing of my father that i started to come across stories and research and information surrounding psychedelics and came across one particular story which was very similar to that of my father's where it was a, a woman that had was suffered suffered for years from alcoholism and nearly took her life and she was fortunate enough to discover psilocybin therapy through a retreat and it completely transformed her life and it got me thinking why are we not talking about this more why is this something still being kept in the shadows uh, and so I find that there's a lot of individuals here in this space that are so passionate about the work that they're doing here for personal reasons, because unfortunately, we've experienced so much loss and, and despair and pain. And uh, I'm wondering, I'm, from your perspective, too, and the, the people that you've spoken with, do you find that most people here uh, that are pushing for advocacy here are doing it for very personal reasons? Yeah, I, I do feel like there are a, a lot of people, uh, you know, who come to this space. I mean, naturally, just based on their own, yeah, their own weather experience of loss, healing. Uh, yeah, I think there are are certainly some who have you know no experience at at all, like including uh, General Steele and Dr. Averill, who are personally using, but like have seen what it has done for other people, or and have been involved with different research and. Uh, you know, are, you know, highly credible people, but, but still have the, yeah, those, those personal stories. And, and for me, even like, you know, there are just some days where I just want to go in and be like an attorney and then explain the legal barriers and explain, you know, the policy considerations and, and not talk about my personal story because it is, can be, it, you know, really can be exhausting. And I think, you know, everybody experiences that some Greeks, it, it is, it is, uh, yeah, I mean, very personal for, for most people who are involved in this. And uh, I do think it's an important part of the story and, and can, uh, you know, those particularly, yeah, powerful stories of healing yeah. too, like, are, are just so vital to, to moving the needle forward. And, uh, you know, the, the number of people who are getting involved in this just continues to grow and has been, uh, yeah, I think, uh, critical, critical component to, to helping to move this forward. I do. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the people being brave enough to share their personal stories and experiences, I think that's what's helped move the needle here more than anything else, uh, especially when you have, whether it's retired sports athletes like Riley Cote, you know, who we were at the uh, screening of, of his uh, documentary uh, a couple of months ago, you know, or, you know, I mean, you've got actors, musicians coming out, I think that's helping to normalize the conversation surrounding psychedelics right now, which is important. Uh, but Brett, you know, one last thing that I want to touch on here before we wrap things up is accessibility and affordability and getting your take on understanding the difference between the two, because yes, accessibility is great if we could have a legal landscape where psychedelics are readily available, uh, whether it's through clinics or what have you, that's fantastic. But that's still, there, there's still a barrier of affordability there. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, you know, how do you see this playing out? Can affordability keep up with accessibility? 
as things start to progress here in this space? Or do you think that affordability is going to remain a barrier for individuals, particularly, you know, we're talking about, you know, marginalized communities. Um, just curious to kind of get your thoughts on the difference between accessibility and affordability as this space here of psychedelics continues to evolve and progress. Well, yeah, I mean, we have a, a very long way to go, just to say the least. And I think there's, uh, you know, a number of ways that access and affordability are, are probably going to move forward. And, uh, you know, one critical component to that is, uh, you know, at least in the terms of like psychedelic assisted therapy and, and using this with, you know, under the care of a, like a professional is, is we're going to certainly need to, you know, have in, like robust insurance coverage and Medicaid in particular is, you know, Medicaid coverage is going to be critical. Uh, we're going to need to have far more people who are actually trained to provide this, particularly like frontline healthcare workers, like nurses and social workers. Uh, we're going to need to broaden who can prescribe this. We already have a you know very broken mental health care system with limited you know accessibility to psychiatrists. So, you know we're going to need broader prescribing privileges, uh, and there are some states that already have that. Uh, you know whether it's psychologists or, or uh, psychiatric nurse practitioners, and I think we're going to really need to to broaden the, the number of people who are going to be able to prescribe under the, the medical system. Uh, and certainly, uh, you know, decriminalization and religious use are other, I think, systems that can add, that will move forward and, and continue to offer alternatives uh, that, that might be more affordable, uh, particularly if, you know, you're not paying for the care of a professional uh, to supervise and, uh, you know, I hope that we're, you know, the federal government continues to invest in, you know, research to track outcomes of places that are doing this. And, and you know, just from a public, you know, big picture public health perspective that can show that, yeah, we can safely, uh, you know, decriminalization is the right move and, and we can safely move that forward. Uh, I think that that, you know, I know that uh, NIDA like put out RFPs recently to, to actually study uh, how the rollouts of these state systems go. And, and I think that's that's gonna be really important to, to get good public health information from the beginning, uh, showing that I, you know, I think the, unfortunately, like first the, uh, as long as schedule one uh, remains a barrier and the, you know, state kind of legalization supported adult use uh, systems go forward, the, you know, the requirement of having a licensed healing center uh, and these, you know, really heavily regulated systems uh, in with that barrier and, and no ability to deduct uh, federal income taxes because of section 280 of the tax code. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's going to create accessibility problems. There's not going to be a very, very, very unlikely to be insurance coverage, not any, certainly not anytime soon. Uh, and I think that is, is definitely a concern to, to the accessibility and affordability component. Uh, but yeah, I think that most likely still, like we will see all of these pathways like somewhat going forward, at least in certain states, like are going to push forward with kind of all of these systems and, and there will be uh, kind of working out of the kinks and, and different, you know, amending of, 
of bills and uh, things along the ways. And, and yeah, regulations will change as we learn more information. But uh, yeah, I think it is likely that we will see some variations of all of this, you know, moving forward. And, uh, you know, as far as the, the medical system goes, I, yeah, you know, think it's just really critical that we're doing good research, collecting good, you know, long-term data and just understanding what are the, you know, implications if we're going to be prescribing this and, you know, using this as a mental health treatment for specific conditions, like we should understand, uh, you know, what those implications are and, and be working to, yeah, hopefully uh, get them covered as broadly as possible uh, by insurance, because that it really is going to be critical for, for people to be able to access moving forward. Definitely. And despite the fact that there's still plenty of challenges and roadblocks that, you know, need to be addressed, I think we're moving in the right direction. Um, I think there's enough people and enough organizations such as Reason for Hope here that are pushing for change and putting in the work here. So I certainly appreciate everything that you've done, Brett. And, you know, I want to give people out there an opportunity, anyone that's interested in supporting Reason for Hope, uh, how could they get involved? Sure. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, well, we have uh, certainly a lot of uh, activity going on right now, both on the the federal uh, legislative front as well as yeah the the state work and and certainly uh, you know please feel free to to uh, reach out to us uh, info at reason for hope org or info at bmhlc.org uh, for the Veteran Mental Health Leadership Coalition and uh, yeah we. Uh, you know, and feel free to visit our our websites. Uh, you know, reason dash forward dash hope dot org and vmhlc.org and and yeah, uh, you know, please get in touch and and we welcome as as many people as possible to to get involved in uh, in this work and uh, yeah, really appreciate you having me on and uh, look forward to continuing to push for some yeah reform at both the federal and, and state level and uh, happy to, to keep in touch. And yeah, uh, please feel free to reach out with uh, yeah any other questions. Absolutely. Well, Brett Waters, it's been a uh, pleasure. Thank you so much. And I look forward to keeping in touch and uh, continuing to follow the progress here of all the fantastic work that Reason for Hope is doing. So thank you again. I appreciate it. Thank you.